Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. My name is Geert, and I'm your host for today on NBN's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. We are very happy to be joined by Professor Stefan Snelders to discuss his new book, Drug Smuggler Nation, Narcotics in the Netherlands, 1920-1995. Welcome, Stefan. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, Geert. Uh, Great that you're here. Professor Snelders, Stefan, is an historian, and he has published extensively on many topics, uh, such as the history of psychoactive substances, pirates, uh, the history of medicine in former colonies, and the assertivity of medical patients over time. His current appointments are as a research fellow at the Descartes Center for the History and Philosophy of Science and at the Freudenthal Institute, both located at the Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Drug Smuggler Nation was published February 2021 with Manchester University Press, and the book provides an overview of the relationship between the criminal drug economy in the Netherlands and the drug regulatory regime as maintained by the Dutch government since 1920. There is a lot of material. Um, It ranges from anecdotes on romanticized cannabis entrepreneurs via the Dutch police's co-management of crime together with the Chinese triads all the way to theory-building explanations of why the Dutch drug underworld is not really like a rigid hierarchical pyramid, but consists instead of an entrepreneurial criminal anarchy. Now, um, Stefan, before we dive into the book's contents, could you tell us a bit more about what brought you to the current subject with this specific angle? And is there a reason why you decided to write it now? Well, the field of drug history um, is is fairly new. Um, it came really into existence in the in the nineteen nineties, and at that time, I was involved in uh, doing my PhD on a subject from the history of drugs that was on the history of LSD in the Netherlands. And from there on, I, I became interested in um, in the career paths of other drugs. But until a few years ago, I was always uh, very much um, working on the demand side of drugs and not so much on the supply side. Um, So I problematized our dealing with uh, drugs in Dutch society and elsewhere, but I never uh, posed myself the real question of um, what is the role of the supply side in this. So like many people, I just presume that a drug, even if it's illegal, it will be supplied in some way uh, by a criminal underground or otherwise, uh, and that's it. Um, But then I started to become more interested in um, global phenomena, uh, global trade routes, also uh, in the context of uh, other projects uh, I did on colonial history. And um, um, it became obvious at some point that the uh, trade routes for illegal drugs nowadays um, 
were almost uh, the same as they had been used for centuries. Uh, for instance, the ones used by um, um, the great Dutch trading companies or the famous Silk Road from Asia. And I was wondering that um, these trade routes kept on being in existence, um, even while the trade itself changed its character, for instance, from legal to illegal. And this um, led to uh, some discussions at the university I worked uh, at, uh, Utrecht University, as you already uh, said. And then they actually asked me, why don't you delve deeper into this phenomenon and try to establish um, why it is that, for instance, the trade routes of the Dutch East India Company in the 1600s are so much similar to the trade routes of um, criminal entrepreneurs and the illegal drug economy nowadays. And this led me to uh, the fascinating uh, world of the supply side, um, which um, turned out to be um, peopled with all kinds of characters, um, groups. Um, some of them you can romanticize, some of them um, you rather not. Uh, but also um, the, the whole geographical lines around the globe were also peopled with, uh, with distinct cultures, cultures of smuggling, cultures of criminality. And um, that really fascinated me that uh, the geography went together with the culture to uh, give um, uh, or to prolong the existing uh, trade routes. Um, so that there, uh, although there are many differences, of course, in the course of the centuries, um, the commonalities are also very striking. So why uh, did we decide to do uh, this now? Um, this was part of a much bigger project, and that has to do with the development of Dutch drug policies. So um, since the 1970s, the Netherlands have always had the reputation of being a very tolerant country towards drugs. Um, Amsterdam is seen as a kind of paradise uh, for everyone who wants to get high. Um, but over the last 10 or 15 years, the Netherlands have become more conservative and um, there are increasing um, attempts to limited the tolerance in the Netherlands also, uh, for instance, in the coffee shops, um, but also on, on other, um, uh, in other territories. And um, this led us to think, uh, okay, but maybe um, this tolerance of the Netherlands is also something of a distinct historical period. Um, why don't we get deeper into this from all kinds of angles, including the supply side, um, and find out what has really driven uh, Dutch drug policies and where will they go? And uh, this also went along with uh, the increasing concerns in our society about the subversion of the Dutch state by the criminal underground, um, so this also posed the question, is this something new? Is this something much more um, 
dangerous than it used to be, how this connects to the rest of society, etc. So it also seemed like the moment to um, uh, further investigate uh, these matters and publish on them. That's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, and and I would, I mean, you say that society is becoming more more conservative, perhaps, uh, but repression against uh, the supply side has always more or less been in place. Uh, I, I I think you you indicated in the book, right? Yeah, that yeah, um, that's one of the great myths of um, Dutch drug policies. And that's also often been used as a kind of rhetorical device by other countries, uh, France, Germany, or the United States, that the Netherlands have not all, all only been tolerant about um, drug use, but also about drug supply. Uh, while in actual fact, since the introduction of the, um, the drug regulatory regime about a century ago, um, the Netherlands have always been very keen on fighting against the large-scale um, drug trade, large-scale smuggling, also the large-scale production of, for instance, um, Dutch homegrown um, marijuana, the so-called Nederwitz, and um, uh, Dutch synthetic illegal drug industry. Um, it is true that the Netherlands have left the small users alone, um, but they've always wrestled with the question, how do we tackle the problem of the big suppliers? Yeah, yeah, I figure. Um, and, and maybe related to this, um, I mean, so, sometimes, something we often hear in discussions on uh, drug market economics is that the price of narcotics remains artificially high because of strict regulation, um, which intuitively sort of makes sense. Um, because well, the risk of incarceration seems like something that's likely to become part of the of the product's price. Uh, but you indicate this is not really the case. Could you maybe um, tell the listeners how that relates to uh, this crucial concept that you name in the book of criminal anarchy? Yeah. So this is this is about uh, the political economy of the drug um, uh, of the drug market. Um, so if, if you take the older position that um, uh, illegal drug markets will tend to develop in the same way as, for instance, um, the beer market, eh, which is uh, monopolized by uh, a few brewers and Heineken in, in, uh, in particular, or uh, coffee markets, eh, where a few players increasingly dominate the market and therefore also can um, um, make prices artificially higher, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and if you combine it with the idea that because of the illegal character of the drug market, uh, it is dangerous to operate it on it. So um, drugs will, will actually be in... Um, in a scarcer supply, and that would also be an indication for raising prices. So this is the old view of the illegal drug market, which was very much around in, say, the 1980s. Um, but actually, um, we see now that this is totally not the way the illegal drug markets have developed. 
Uh, they didn't get monopolized by a few big players. Um, prices didn't go up, uh, at least in the Netherlands they did it. They didn't. Um, for instance, the price of ecstasy of MDMA is today um, far lower than it was in the early 1990s. Prices of heroin and cocaine have, with some fluctuations, uh, been kept stable. And also the market has not become dominated by a few uh, players, uh, but instead um, by a fluid combination of all kinds of suppliers, smugglers, uh, and networks in, in different alliances and different combinations. And actually the illegal character of the drug market, rather than um, um, stimulating high prices and monopolization, has done um, the reverse thing in the Netherlands. And this is where the concept of criminal energy comes in. Uh, energy is, a kind, is taken here as a kind of organizational model, an, a flat and flexible organizational model with no real hi hierarchy uh, in which people can easily uh, split off from each other, make new alliances. Um, and you see this is actually a far more um, difficult kind of organization to fight against for law enforcement then if they would just have to uh, dismantle a great hierarchical organizations and take out the big leaders. And you can see, for instance, in the Colombian cocaine trade that it didn't really matter much that at a certain point um, they were able to kill Pablo Escobar. Much was made of it, um, but it didn't affect, um, I would say, the cocaine trade uh, at all. It didn't increase prices. It didn't lead to scarcity of the market. Um, um, so this is not the way uh, that works. So you have flat, you have flat models. Um, that also means that you have... So why does a flat model actually means that you don't have monopolization and you don't have um, a tendency to higher prices? So these are uh, um, small groups. So um, it's actually very difficult for them to control the whole market. Uh, they are not so much involved in uh, territorialization. So the idea that a, a drug cartel also actually in a physical way controls a certain territory, um, like in the way we think about uh, Mexican drug cartels, um, uh, for instance. Um, this is more complicated in Mexico, but it definitely did not exist in uh, the Netherlands. There is no territorialization. Actually, um, a group of drug smokers tries to keep its personnel as uh, small as possible um, in order to detect um, or to evade detection by law enforcement. And that means that you actually have a lot of competitors on the market. Um, so there is no incentive there to um, monopolization and to increase prices. Um, and in the case of the Netherlands, it's also um, a fact that because the Netherlands have become a central hub of the drug trade, many drugs go through the Netherlands 
And what stays here is often, or is produced here, uh, is often much cheaper than uh, in other countries, for instance, uh, in England or in Scandinavia. So the, uh, the model of the illegal drug market, which is based on this uh, organizational um, criminal energy, has actually led to um, easy access to the market for suppliers, to uh, low prices and to, I would say, um, um, a complete lack of the monopolization expected uh, by earlier researchers. Yeah, intriguing. So, so you said that the, the high competition um, keeps the prices down and, and um, that it, it's actually, it's, it's very hard to take the, so to say, the key players out because it's actually about the opportunity structures that are offered and not so much about the, the individual players. Yeah, uh, well, or you could say it otherwise, the, uh, you can take the so-called key players out and that has been done in the past. Uh, or they have been killed by, um, for for one reason or other, by other criminals, as, such as, uh, for instance, famous um, drug lords in the past, as Klaas Bruinsma of Chung Mon. Uh, or today, there's also um, um, some uh, violence between uh, drug suppliers. Um, but um, they are not key. Um, in the sense that they actually control the markets. You see that they always get uh, their successes, that new players can enter the market. Yeah, yeah, I see. Maybe a tangentially related question. So um, in the aftermath um, of the different instances of prohibition that you, um, that you relate in, in the book, um, every time you see this, uh, moment of prohibition. Subsequently, um, it's quite common to see that the demand also grows. Um, yeah. The mechanism behind this uh, this growth of, of demand seems a bit different every time. Sometimes it incorporates um, uh, cultural rebellious elements. Uh, in other cases, it seems to be driven by supply. Um, is, do you see a general trend in these different increases of demand? Well, the, the most general trend is, of course, the, the misconnect between the um, uh, drug regulation by the state and what actually takes place uh, in the field of drug markets and drug demands. So our, our normal idea of prohibition is, um, uh, you know, like, like America in the 1920s, there was a big alcohol problem and prohibition was um, a way of dealing with that, although we can have a discussion about uh, the extent to which that worked. Uh, but uh, um, uh, in the Netherlands, the drug laws actually were instigated before uh, drug demand really developed. And that is because the, um, uh, the Dutch uh, drug laws were primarily instigated because of international developments. So you see at the end of the 19th century that there is a tendency towards an international regulation of uh, certain drugs, which is led by the United States uh, and China. Um, 
European countries weren't too enthusiastic about it, but um, uh, also because they produce these drugs themselves, uh, either at home or in the colonies. Um, but uh, when the, um, Germany lost the First World War uh, and the United States more or less became a dominant superpower, um, from then on, it, it's more or less obligatory for a government to play along in this drug regulatory regime. Um, but uh, if we look at uh, the great changes in the drug laws, we see it again and again that the uh, uh, drug market only expands after the drug is prohibited. So um, it happens in uh, 1920 when uh, opium, heroin and cocaine are um, uh, made illegal under the drug laws. Uh, it, it happens after 1953 when cannabis, uh, the use of cannabis is prohibited in the drug law. It happens after 1966 when LSD and other hallucinogens are prohibited in the drug law. Uh, and it happens again in 1988 when MDMA is prohibited in the uh, drug law. Um, and you see there is almost a misconnect between these regulations and what actually happens in society um, where large social and cultural groups take up these drugs, irrespective of whether they are not uh, controlled in the drug laws, uh, and the market expands, and therefore um, suppliers also uh, see a way to make profit and also expand their activities. Um, nowadays, it goes a little bit the other way with um, uh, with these new psychotropic substances with, which enter the market, but which are ac actually a kind of um, a response to the drug law. So you prohibit a drug, then people make a drug that looks like the drug, but is not yet prohibited, uh, that has to be prohibited again. Um, so we have the, now this whole cycle um, of increasing demand for regulation. Uh, but throughout the, um, the first 70, 70 or 75 years of the drug laws in Netherlands, um, it was all, always the other way around. The drug was already prohibited and then it came on the market. Okay, so you, you wouldn't say that there is a, necessarily a causal mechanism between um, prohibiting a substance and it, and it subsequently becoming popular. You just say that there is no connection at all. I would say there's no connection at all. You, you see, of course, in the, from the 1950s onward that um, um, many people, the, the, the more or less illegal status of the drugs, uh, the fact that you have to go to um, um, places more or less out of control of the state may have added another spice to uh, using these drugs. Um, so that's all, also often an argument against uh, prohibiting them. But actually, yeah, I think that's, that was not never such a uh, big deal. Um, drugs have a function in our society. They have a function for certain social groups. And uh, the development of, um, of this function is, is not, has not been 
directed or um, regulated by what happens to the drug laws. Yeah, yeah, intriguing. Um, what I find a fascinating moment in, in time is this romanticized period of the music festival in Kralingen, which is, well, for our listeners, uh, sort of Dutch Woodstock uh, with um, uh, with its like um, uh, mythology, and um, I'm fascinated by by this this festival and its relationship to the Dutch take on cannabis, the Dutch authorities' take on cannabis, um, and with an eye on subsequent Dutch drug regulations, uh, so coming after mid '60s, would you say this festival was a, a kind of a turning point um, in the sense of this turning an eye policy of the Netherlands that, that we currently have towards towards marijuana or was this um, handling of cannabis at this specific moment more an, an, an image of the underlying currents in Dutch culture and Dutch policy? Um, well, you can see Kralinger as, as an expression of uh, what is a turning point and that is the, the realization not only that there are increasing number of users um, of illegal drugs at the time, especially cannabis we're now talking about, um, but also that the uh, users of this cannabis were um, not people from let's say, marginalized communities like ethnic minorities or um, the lower uh, classes, for instance. Now, the users of this cannabis were very much uh, middle-class users. Um, and this realization dawned in the first half of the 1970s and post um the regulators for a very a distinctive problem because um, um, taking a hard stance about account cannabis use um, in what was in effect um, their own children or children from their own social classes would alienate these children even further from the society uh, they grew up in. So, um, and it's also personified, for instance, that um, the Minister of Public Health in the cabinet um, um, that changes the drug law and makes the distinction between hard and soft drugs, which in the Netherlands meant that the use of, um, of cannabis was decriminalized. Um, and the Minister of Public Health in that uh, cabinet uh, had a son who was actually one of the most uh, vocal exponents of the, uh, the positive benefits of cannabis use. So you see, um, uh, it, it's almost like um, uh, Kralingen and uh, the explosion of a uh, what you can call a hippie subculture in which many uh, people uh, started smoking. Um, this led to a typical Dutch phenomenon, which meant looking for a compromise. Uh, and the compromise was actually that, uh, uh, so the cannabis use gets decriminalized. That means that we don't have to persecute our own children who are smoking cannabis. 
uh, on the other hand, to make uh, people happy who um, are against drug, we increase the punishments for high drugs, and we also um, 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 make another drug, amphetamines, which was until then not uh, included in the drug laws, uh, a high drug. And in such a way, we have a new compromise in which we uh, can continue functioning in the Netherlands. Oh, that, that, that's fascinating. Uh, um, if, I, if I may interrupt, so um, wasn't it the case that amphetamines were at that time quite normalized? Um, what, weren't those sort of normalized also among non-marginalized uh, groups? Uh, yeah, amphetamines came on the market in the 1940s during the... Um, well, at the end of the 30s, but more, um, and they became more popular during the Second World War. Uh, they were taken by all kinds of people, not just drug users, but um, uh, uh, students who wanted to um, um, study for their exams to increase their concentration, um, truck drivers who needed uh, a drug to keep awake uh, when traveling. Um, people went to a party, drove back, uh, and took uh, amphetamines to um, stop the effects of the alcohol. Uh, there's also a lot of incidental and anecdotal material on the use of uh, amphetamines in uh, in sports. For instance, the famous football teams of the early 70s uh, seem to have um, been richly doped with uh, with amphetamines. So uh, amphet- uh, the same goes for the cyclists. So amphetamine was not really what we would call a uh, a drug which is taken by uh, junkies and all kinds of people you have a negative image of. Uh, amphetamine was very much in Western culture um, and it has actually been um, uh, regulated first in the economic laws to prevent it being uh, traded to uh, to other countries and later in the in the drug laws uh, on the request of Sweden, uh, which developed uh, or said it developed quite an amphetamine problem, prohibited amphetamines, and um, Dutch criminal entrepreneurs took their chance, uh, smuggled amphetamines to Sweden. Um, so this led to another international pressure on the Netherlands uh, and to the illegalization of amphetamines, which, will, which also meant that the Dutch government could say, okay, we have made cannabis into soft drug, but see what we do with other drugs, uh, which are a problem in other countries. I see. Fascinating. Um, maybe back to the to the more to the supply side in in the book you mentioned several instances of corporate non-compliance uh, throughout the the 20th century would you say that this is something typical for the dutch situation and and is there a historical case of corporate non-compliance regarding drug trade drug uh, distribution uh, that particularly struck you um I'm not sure if it's a typical Dutch phenomenon. I, I think um, um, I think the main thing you have to realize is that what whatever else um, illegal drugs are, they are um, trades. They are objects to make money with. So if you are a trading nation, 
uh, and there's a lot of money to be made with these illegal drugs, it, uh, what would be really remarkable is that you didn't have the phenomenon that all people tried to find corners in the laws, uh, to cut corners, or what is the English expression, um, to make some kind of profit from these drugs. Um, and you see from the beginning that it is uh, everywhere. Uh, so the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies who uh, are no longer allowed to uh, sell their drugs for um, non-medical purposes, they try to find ways to still make a profit. Uh, people who work for them... Um, take their expertise into illegal markets. Um, and that's the 1920s, but you see in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, chemical companies delivering precursor chemicals for the illegal industry, maybe not explicitly being told uh, by the people who buy these chemicals that it is for illegal purposes but definitely also not asking about it. So what one doesn't know uh, doesn't hurt. <laughs> um, and and I, I guess you can find this, uh, this book is of course about the Netherlands. I guess you can find it in other nations as well. But it, um, um, it's very much about a key part of the, of the, also of the image of the Netherlands that we are a trading nation. Um, so trade is what fuels us. Trade has, is what has made us wealthy. At least that is the idea. So, um, okay, the illegal drugs are regulated. Some people abuse it. Uh, on the other hand, there were times when they were not regulated. So, um, um, you know, we can make a little side profit. Uh, the same goes for... Uh, certain transport companies who um, um, allow drugs to be carried in their fans from uh, Morocco or from Turkey. Um, the same uh, goes, of course, for people who um, look the other way to renters who, um, um, who construct an illegal drug laboratory in on a farm in, say, the south of the country? Um, so it's it's all trade. You're not you're not too much involved with the nasty side of things. Um, so why wouldn't you make a profit? Because else you would be uh, more or less um, what we call a thief of your own wallet. And I think that's very much um, attention also in the Dutch uh, cultural identity. And you see also from the beginning that, um, and it's, not, it's still a, a big problem, that you don't want to tackle the uh, illegal drug trade in such a way that you damage other um, trade flows. So uh, a, lot, a lot is going on in the, in the port of Rotterdam. It's one of the greatest hubs for illegal drugs uh, in the world has been uh, for decades uh, but you don't you you can uh, control every ship if you want it but that would mean that you really damage your own economy your own trade flows 
So uh, even when you are um, fighting the drug trade, you must always make allowance for uh, the key business of the Netherlands, and that is that trade in itself must go on. Yeah, m- makes sense. Those are the dilemmas of a trading nation, I guess. Um, beyond the na- native Dutch, there were also um, many, many other nationalities, countries, uh, ethnic groups involved in smuggling drugs uh, to and through the Netherlands. Um, and, and some have been very much embedded in Dutch society, while others were at a distance. Could you maybe ex- explain to the, the listeners what have been the different approaches of all these, of all these groups? Um, how, if at all, did they connect with the Dutch, for instance? Yeah, so I make a distinction between two uh, non-native kind of groups. Uh, The first are the um, um, groups who are embedded in migrant communities uh, who came to the Netherlands in the 20th century. So the the original example are the Chinese. They come to the Netherlands just before the First World War. um, they are at that time uh, often employed by the shipping industries. That's when you get these uh, Chinatowns in uh, cities as Amsterdam and Rotterdam. And a lot of these Chinese in their culture um, uh, were involved in smoking opium. Um, that was part of, of uh, their way of life. Uh, and when opium was um, uh, forbidden in the drug laws, um, the Chinese sailors kept on continuing to uh, ensure that um, the flow of opium to consumers uh, in the Netherlands continued. And um, the, the Chinese kept themselves at that point very much apart from the Netherlands, so at their own, uh, you know, their own lodging houses, their own opium dens, their own gambling houses, um, um, but they um, sometimes they would uh, allow uh, a native Dutch to, uh, to buy some opium, but they were very much uh, in a physical way present in the Netherlands. So for the smugglers who wanted to um, get opium into the Netherlands, the Chinese who had family connections, for instance, between uh, China and, and the Netherlands um, were already very much present and they could use their uh, global connections to smuggle the drugs. And um, that started in the 1920s, but the whole heroin epidemic of the 1970s is also supplied by these um, um, Chinese networks spanning the globe, as it were. But you also have um, um, smugglers from um, communities who are not embedded in Dutch society. So, for instance, uh, the Greek drug smugglers of the 1920s, and perhaps more telling, the Colombian smugglers of the of cocaine um, around 1990, they could not rely on the existence of a large Greek or Colombian migrant community in the Netherlands. 
So what you see is that they are actually uh, they sending envoys, they making deals with either native Dutch or other ethnic groups who are embedded in the Netherlands. Um, and what is um, what struck me about it is how very opportunistic and pragmatic uh, these groups are. So on the one hand, they are very much organized. Uh, along their own ethnic lines, uh, work uh, for a great part together with their own uh, countrymen or people from their own migrant communities. But on the other hand, they are very much capable of making uh, alliances uh, if necessary. For instance, if you want to smuggle cocaine to Europe, you do not have a large migrant community, you don't have family living there. So you make contact with um, local criminal entrepreneurs um, and in, in such a way ensure that the trade flows keep on uh, going. Yeah, yeah, intriguing. That's, uh, that's quite the difference. There's also another group in the Netherlands, um, which is, well, more recently talked about, I would say, and that's the southern regions of the, of the Netherlands itself. Um, and these are often mentioned, as, especially when talking about synthetic drug production and, and trade. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the historical characteristics of this region that made it into such a, such a fertile ground for synthetic drug production and smuggling? Um, yeah, well, <laughs> there has been a lot, of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of discussion of this, of course, in the Netherlands. <clears throat> There's a lot of talk of the existence of uh, criminal cultures, of families going way back uh, and uh, engaged in all kinds of um, smuggling and other criminal activities. Uh, but I think the main point is that um, uh, these provinces, uh, Brabant, Limburg, but also Zeeland, are of course uh, connected to other countries uh, by land, so they have land borders. Um, so they're already the most logical places in which you would expect uh, large-scale forms of smuggling. Um, and then they have certain specific um, um, forms of smuggling which are closely connected to um, historical developments. Uh, for instance, uh, that is the, uh, the prime example, is the infamous butter smuggling of the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah, of course. Uh, so um, a butter, real butter is produced in the Netherlands, but not so much consumed in the Netherlands because... Um, uh, the Dutch preferred the more cheaper um, margarine, so the, the fake butter. Um, but in Belgium, people want to have the uh, real thing. Only in Belgium, the costs of the butter are much higher than in the Netherlands before the coming of the uh, European uh, Union. Um, so what happened was that butter was smuggled on an extremely large scale into Belgium. Um, and this work was carried out by the same kind of 
smuggler groups that we know nowadays uh, in the amphetamine and ecstasy trades. In fact, uh, we can, um, and I describe in the book also, uh, the historical line which goes from the, uh, the butter smugglers of the 1940s, of the 1950s, who were often financed by um, respectable people in their villages who took a share in, um, in the cost of the operation in return for a part of the profits. Um, they organized in such a way that they um, could break through the uh, border barriers uh, that the Dutch military police, the Meisters say, had put up. Uh, this included things as armored cars uh, in which to drive through um, uh, police fences, uh, stuff like that. Now, these smugglers, and they were in Brabant, they were in Limburg, they were also in, uh, in Zeeland, uh, at a certain moment um, um, cannot make any profit anymore with butter smuggling uh, because the, uh, of the new European policies, so the end of the the tariffs between Netherlands and Belgium. So they start to develop other practices. One of these is the illegal liquor distillery. So you make alcohol, which is not subject to uh, excises in Texas. Um, and some of them became uh, very famous uh, burglars. Um, and these burglars at some point... Um, um, were so much controlled by the police who, um, uh, who followed them around in the operation that they decided to move into the amphetamine smuggling into Sweden, uh, which I talked about earlier. Uh, and one of the nice things was that in the illegal liquor distilleries, they could easily build them around to uh, illegal amphetamine production laboratories. So, um, uh, and this continues. Um, so, uh, some of these people were also involved in the illegal MDMA production of the 1990s. Same story, uh, the amphetamine uh, labs, the, um, they changed into producing MDMA. So, there is actually a um, genealogy of this illegal underground drug economy producing and smuggling drugs. Um, that, that dates at least to the, uh, to the Second World War or actually to the, the period between the world wars. Yeah, that's intriguing. So again, as you say, uh, as you said earlier, it's, it's largely determined by geography and then maybe with a hint of historical contingencies. Well, I would say uh, geography is one, um, but... Um, the existence of of of, uh, of certain cultures um, is two. These these two have to combine. And what do I mean? It's a culture. Uh, so um, in the Netherlands, but also in other countries, you have um, um, what I would call criminal cultures, in which certain ways of uh, behavior, certain values, uh, certain ways of looking at the state and its laws is produced and um, disseminated, learned to new generations. 
Um, and you see in the Netherlands that these criminal cultures <clears throat> and the cultures I mentioned in the south of Holland is one example, but uh, the criminal cultures in um, the lower class um, districts of Amsterdam and Rotterdam are another example uh, at the same time as the uh, as the colleagues in the south move in into the amphetamine smuggling these cultures move into uh, the cannabis smuggling for instance in the early 1970s uh, you see that they have the um, uh, the culture ready to move into these markets so i would say um, geography is one thing the existence of uh, certain criminal cultures is another condition for these markets to drive. Um, and their ability to make alliances, um, for instance, with producers in other countries, but also with um, um, the kind of non-compliant upper world companies we just talked about, uh, people who deliver precursor chemicals for your illegal lab or um, fishermen who, um, um, who allow you to use their boats for smuggling cannabis from Lebanon to the Netherlands, uh, st things like that. Um, these cultural factors are as much important as um, the geographical factors that you're all also on the right spot um, for instance the borders with belgium or germany or the open sea in which you easily uh, can smuggle into uh, north africa or the middle east or asia um, these cultural factors are as much as important and if you combine that with uh, a last factor an increasing demand which you didn't even have to advertise for, eh? it was just there, but you are, um, because of the factors mentioned, actually the, the ideal people to supply this demand. Fascinating, yeah, yeah, I understand. Would you, um, would you say that this penetration of the upper world that you just mentioned, would you say that this, is, that this has increased in the period that you were watching uh, uh, that you surveyed in this book? Actually, there is, there is no way at all we can uh, test such a hypothesis. Um, um, so at, at the moment, I know um, there's a lot of research, for instance, in the port of Rotterdam about um, uh, corruption among uh, security personnel, etc. But we have no way of knowing how this uh, can be established in any uh, quantitative way over the past century. The only thing I can say is that from the very early start, you can already find evidence of corruption. You already find in the 1920s drugs on the market which had been seized by the police before. Um, you already have in the 1920s um, police officers in Rotterdam who are photographed uh, in the beaches together with Chinese traffickers on a day out. 
So cold. So um, I would say the market has expanded. So that would mean more people would be needed to uh, have more people from the upper world would be needed to uh, keep the market going. Um, but I think the fact itself that has always been around, at least since uh, 1920. Um, and I'm not sure um, if, if, the, if, if the functioning of these markets is in any way different. Or let me put it in this way. Um, you need a certain amount of corruption to be able to have the have, have an illegal market going. Um, and this has always been the case. It doesn't mean that the, um, uh, the side effects, for instance, uh, subversion of authority or any way, uh, are bound to increase. Uh, it's, it's just a way of wheeling and dealing, and that's how the market functions. Um, in the Netherlands, it's not so obvious as, for instance, in other countries. Uh, certain countries where you know you have to pay uh, a police officer something. Uh, but it does exist here. Um, it was uh, debated quite a lot also in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, the big drug lords we talked about, like Chung Mon or Klaas Breinema, all they seem to have their own contacts in the police. So... Um, did it increase in any significant way other than it increased because the, the market has increased, if you uh, understand my meaning? Uh, we, we just can't say. But I, I'm not sure that this is the case. No, it makes sense. makes sense. It's, it's very hard or even impossible to quant quantify. Yeah, understandable. I think we're... we're almost coming to the end of the interview. I've, I've taken up already almost an hour of your time. Um, is there maybe, because the book is full of intriguing anecdotes and, and salient stories about individuals or, or groups, um, is there one that you find particularly funny or particularly meaningful or, or perhaps one that you didn't know before you started researching the, the current book that you want to share with us? Um. Well, what I didn't know or uh, didn't realize, um, uh, what, what especially uh, fascinated me was um, um, some of these um, people from the South uh, in the 1960s, and especially a guy called uh, Aino Mink, um, because he more or less um, epitomizes for me the, the dual phases of, um, of the criminal drug market. And what do I mean with the dual phases? Is on the one hand, it's, um, um, it's of course, a, uh, an underworld um, which has its very nasty sides. Uh, on the other hand, there's also um, a kind of romanticized image of them. Um, and, and some of these um, um, drug smokers cultivated his own image 
but some of them also um, were giving it to the public. And um, Arno Mink is fascinating because uh, when he was a burglar, he was the typical uh, burglar that people idolize. So he, he only robbed uh, the banks and never um, uh, the people. And that's why he also gained, gained the name, the nickname of the Robin Hood of the South. Um, and they had to be sent uh, a public prosecutor from um, from the west of the country who had served of all places in the colonial Indonesia. He had, had especially to be sent to the south to make an end to the activities of, uh, of this Robin Hood of the south and his gang. Um, and in the meantime, you see that the people of the... Uh, of Limburg, where he lived and operated, actually didn't mind his activity so much, uh, kind of laughed about setbacks for the banks or for, or for police officers who came from uh, from Holland, the west of the country. And um, this is actually a kind of, of cultural image which he takes into his further explorations of, for instance, uh, the amphetamine trade. Um, and you see that a lot of these uh, smugglers and criminals uh, also try to create such images for themselves. Um, uh, perhaps you know that um, a lot of the way criminals behave and act and start doing is very much influenced by one movie, uh, The Godfather. Uh, people even uh, calling themselves like uh, they're called in The Godfather. Uh, criminals in Japan changing their higher style because of uh, this uh, movie. Uh, you see today still that these, these famous criminals who are now <coughs> prosecuted um, had the one uh, uh, people who are um, um, caught in Dubai sent back to the Netherlands for prosecution. And they also have these fantasized images of um, famous drug lords. So um, uh, this kind of anecdotes uh, fascinated me particularly because they emphasize how uh, not only these non-compliant companies, but often the public at large is very much ambivalent about these kinds of criminals. Um, and that's, of course, also because they actually perform an important function for us. Uh, they deliver our drugs to us. Um, and a lot of people in the Netherlands um, use illegal drugs, even from the highest social classes. Um, so they actually, rather than, uh, you can see of, of them as a kind of parasites on society, uh, but if you look at their positions in the economic system, they actually uh, contribute to our uh, trade economy and, and GMP. Although uh, sometimes um, uh, the side effects are too, uh, too severe. And uh, our, our double-sidedness about these kind of criminals is for me... Um, that explains for me um, the anecdotes about people like Arno Mink or some of his colleagues. Uh, for instance, you also have some guy who was called uh, the Black Knight because he um, 
he smuggled the butter in his black pantsuit armor car through um, through the borders. Fascinating images indeed, uh, and and a very very ambivalent uh, picture of them indeed. Yeah. Well, I guess that was it from my side, and it's it's been super interesting. Thank you so much. One final question before saying goodbye. What are your upcoming projects? Is there anything for us uh, that we can look forward to? Well, I have actually two things in mind. Um, I would like to extend my uh, my history of uh, uh, of drug smuggling and these criminal cultures until the present day. Um, but I'm also uh, have become interested in an, in another form of criminal activity, and that is the illegal wildlife trade, which is um, also one of the biggest illegal trades in the world, um, with um, very negative uh, effects on the survival of species. Um, and I have the, uh, the idea that the kind of, of, of analysis in this book also very much imply uh, to the illegal wildlife trade. So uh, this would be a, direct, uh, a direction I would like to go into uh, in the coming years. That's great. That sounds interesting indeed. And, uh, well, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Once again, Professor Stefan, thank you for your time and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Bye-bye.